Let's go ahead and find our seats and open our Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. And let's pray. Father, again, we are grateful for the gift of your word, for the gift of the indwelling Holy Spirit, that you do not leave us to ourselves, that you don't leave us to our own devices, that you have revealed so much. You've given us everything that we need pertaining to life and godliness. You've given us all of the grace that we need in order to live as we ought. You have freed us from the penalty and the power of sin. Sin is no longer our master. It no longer has dominion over us. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us to see your realities this morning as we come to your word. Help us to see you in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the last time we were in Colossians, we were in chapter 2, and Paul, in this letter, has been extolling the preeminence of Christ. Christ is everything. He is to have the first place in everything. He has the first place in in everything. That is something that is not something that we're to give him. That is something that he already possesses. He has been given the name that is above every name. And he points to Christ. He he shows the the absolute, his majesty. He shows that he is He is God. He has the same essence as God. He is in no way inferior to the Father. And he is to be worshipped in that fashion. And then he begins to take on the different issues that are facing the Colossians. He encourages them. You've received Christ. You have been so taught in Christ. Therefore, Walk in that fashion. Have it as your manner of life that you are obeying him. Don't get caught up. Don't be suckered. Don't be deceived with the empty philosophy and the deceptions of this world. And in the last half of chapter 2, he talks about don't get sucked into the legalism, the mysticism, and the asceticism of the world. These are the elementary principles of the world. This is the stuff that the world puts forward and it has nothing. It's the shadow, it's not the substance. We talked about that, that you know, if you aim at the shadow, are you ever going to hit the actual target? No, you can't because you're aiming in the wrong place. The shadow is never where the actual reality is. And so, leave this stuff be. This stuff has the appearance of wisdom. It has the appearance of, um, this is how things ought to be, but at the end, all it does, it has no value. In fact, let's just go back here, uh, chapter 2, verse 20. If you have died with Christ, since you have died with Christ, to the elementary principles of the world, why... As if you were living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, which all refer to things destined to perish with use in accordance with the commandments and teachings of men. You've given away Christ. You're substituting 
the ideas of men. These are matters which have to be sure the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So you have those who go through, and you remember the words of Jesus, if your hand causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off. It's better to go through life maimed than to end up suffering hell, right? So you have people who have problems with their hands, so whap, they take off their hand. They have problems with what they, with what they view, boo, they pluck out their eye. They have problems with where they go, whack, they take off one of their feet. Does that actually help them? It has done nothing to deal with the issue of the heart, which is where all of those things come from. So you end up going through life half-blind with the nickname of Stumpy. And it's actually accomplished nothing for you. And so here again, Paul is saying, here's the problem. Now, chapter 3, now how do you deal with it? How is it that you're going to, what will help you in your fight against these things? And where do you think he's going to look? What, what has been his solution through this whole book to this point? I was going to answer that question, but I'm not going to. You, come on, new year, new year. Everybody wake up. What has been his proposed solution to the problems that he has dealt with to this point? Where, where has he pointed them? He's pointed them to Christ. And funny, that's exactly where he's going to go to right now. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, in light of these things, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God, when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free man, but Christ is all and in all. So again, he points them straight back to Christ. And he's going to talk about, now here is the spiritual reality. What the world has to offer is shadow. It is empty. It has nothing to it. The actual reality is found in Christ. And in fact, regardless of how it feels, this is how things are. Now remember that he went through and he used two 
metaphors in describing what has been done to us, what has been done in us in salvation. He used circumcision. What's the idea? How does circumcision relate to salvation? Is the physical act the important thing of circumcision? No. It is a picture, it's a physical picture of a spiritual reality. What's the spiritual reality of circumcision? I'm sorry? We belong to God. There's a, there's, the important thing is the circumcision of heart, where we have had, it's a picture again of separation. It's a picture of um, something that is permanent. Do you ever, if you have been circumcised, men, do you ever become uncircumcised? No. That has been taken, it has been removed, and again, that is an idea of we have been made dead to the former way of life. That's the same thing that he, that's pictured with baptism. What, what is, what, you know, baptism again is a physical act. You're taken, you go down under the water, you come up out of the water. What is that a picture of? All right, you die. That is the idea of being buried. You are buried in the water. You are raised up. In Romans 6, it talks about we are raised to walk in newness of life in Christ Jesus. And so, again, you are dead to what is in the past. You are dead to your former way of living. And you have been raised to walk in the manner in which Christ walks. Again, that is an event that occurs. The language that Paul is using here is going back and referring to this event that has happened in the past because it did happen. If you're redeemed, when you were converted... You died to, the, to your former way of living. You died to that. When we're converted, prior to conversion, we are slaves of sin. We don't have a choice. We cannot please God because we are slaves of sin. That's the way we operate that's the way we think. But on conversion, that man is killed. We are freed from sin's penalty, but we are also freed from sin's power. Right? Sin shall no longer have dominion over you. In fact, let's just go back there. Let's uh, go back to Romans chapter 6. There's almost no easy place to start here. 
Let's just start in chapter one, in verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? We have died to sin. What tense is that? Past tense. That is something that has already occurred. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized, what tense is that? That's past tense. This has already occurred. Because that also happens at the moment of conversion. You're baptized into Christ Jesus. You've been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him, with Christ, in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who has died is freed from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And we could keep going, frankly. The point is, death is done. We are no longer under the mastery of sin. That, if you are a believer in Christ, if you are redeemed, that is the reality. Whether you think it or not, whether you feel it or not, that is the reality. Therefore, if that's the reality, that is the way in which we should live. And so Paul here begins, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, and this is another one of those where it really should be translated, since... Since you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above. Now, I'm not sure why they translated that this is the right way to translate the keep seeking. This is the right way to translate it. I'm, I don't know why they translated this one this way, but the other ones that follow, they did not. It's a present active imperative. Imperative meaning what? That's a command. Do this. Active voice, meaning anytime you see active voice, who's the actor? I am. You are. So this is something that we are to do. Present tense, meaning what? It's now in this way. When's the present? Right now. When's the present? Right now. The present tense keeps moving with time because the present keeps moving. So the idea is, whenever you have a, a present active imperative, it's the idea that you keep doing this. 
This isn't one thing that you do one time and all of a sudden that settles everything for all time for you. No, this is something that you keep doing. So this idea here is you keep seeking the things above. Now, we used to have a fellow here who was always talking about looking up, right? Now, he was talking about looking up predominantly in the present in the idea of looking for Christ's return, which is a great thing to look for. It's a great thing it's to live in the light of. In fact, we should be living in the light of that. But it's also looking up. Why? Because that's where Christ is. And what is our relationship with Christ right now at this moment? What's our relationship with Christ? We're in Christ. We are in union with him. Do you get that? Do you? We are in union with Christ. Now, spiritually speaking, what does that mean? Spiritually speaking, where are you and I at this moment? Okay, we're righteous before God, but that talks about how we are. Where are we right now? We are seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Do you doubt that? We'll flip back a few pages, and let's go to Ephesians chapter 2. Here's another one. Here's another one. We'll start in verse 1 because so much of this applies to this particular passage in Colossians. Ephesians 2.1, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He seated us. What tense? Past. Galatians 2.20, most of you probably have that one memorized. Galatians 2.20. Somebody start it. I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So again... What he's pointing to, we have died. We have died to sin. We have been raised. We are in Christ. And in fact, the way he puts it here back in Colossians, 
keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And again, the right hand of God represents what? The right hand of power on a throne represented what? It represented authority. It was, in fact, it represented the authority of the throne. So where Christ is, he has the authority of God. He has the power of God. And for us, we are to keep looking there. So again, the world offers all of this distraction and deception. And the way that you get away from getting sucked into this is you keep looking where you are. You keep looking to what the actual reality is. Keep going. Verse 2, set your mind on the things above. This is another present active imperative. So it is keep on setting your mind on the things above. Not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now, you'll remember Jesus talked about how when those who are redeemed are in his hand, and who's able to take them out of his hand? No one. But, and where's Christ? Well, Christ is in the Father's hand. And so who's able to take them out of God's hand? The Father. Nobody. But the, so the idea here, the picture is, with Christ and the Father, there is perfect union they are inseparable that is how we are as well we have union with Christ we cannot be separated from him so Paul is saying since that is the reality that is where you keep looking that is where you set your focus and it's continual it doesn't stop. It's not, it's something to be habitual, not hit and miss. If we're not setting our affection, if we're not setting, by the way, what does it mean to set your affection? That's a word that's often used here. King James has it that way. What does that mean? Make it your focus. Okay, someone just used the word treasure. What did Jesus say about treasure? That's where your heart is, right? What you really treasure, that's where your heart is. And so again, it is continual, setting our mind, looking to Christ. What are the things that make him happy? What are the things that demonstrate that, in fact, I am in union with him? Do I think as he thinks? Do I act as he acts? Do I speak as he speaks? And again, verse 3, for you have died. And that's not, again, it's not in the sense of being mostly dead. You've died to the way that things were in the past. Therefore, those things no longer, they are not to characterize you. You've been freed from them. You are no longer this person. You are now this person. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Now, 
there's a, there's a term called glorification to where we are going to be made in every way like Christ. When did that happen? When will that happen? In fact, let's start with the second question first. When will that happen? When we see him. Except when did it happen? When did it happen? At our conversion. Here's the thing. See, so what Brian, Brian's saying, well, when did it become a done deal? Here's the thing. Our glorification is so certain, God refers to it in the past tense. Okay, so. Here, let's go to Romans 8. Again, where do we start? The temptation is to start at verse 28, but we'll go back to verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's the basis for, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. These whom he called, he also justified. These whom he justified, he also glorified. All of those are in what tense? Past. The fact of the matter is, that has happened. We do not yet have full possession of it. It's like having a, a new house. You have the keys. You just haven't moved in yet. And so, again, he keeps pointing here. The idea, you reject the things of the world. They have nothing to offer. You hold to the things of Christ. One commentator put it, you're looking at earth from heaven's perspective. That's how we look, that's how we're to look at the things that are around us. Now, it's interesting, back in Colossians, verse 3, for you have died. That's in the aorist tense. And what that means, that happened at a single point in time in the past. So, uh, each one of us was born. Well, that happened at a single point in time in the past. The idea of being hidden, your life is hidden with Christ, is in the perfect tense. Now, the perfect tense is something that happens in the past, 
but has ongoing consequence. And so we died, single event. Our life is hidden is something that that continues on. And so the union with Christ continues on. We're unified with Christ in God. Now that becomes fully apparent. That becomes fully demonstrated when Jesus returns or we go to be with him. That's when that we possess that fully because we're going to see him. We're going to be like him because we're going to see him as he is, right? So, this first part, this is seeking the heavenly. Now, he's going to, pro- he's going to progress now. You kill the earthly. You seek after the heavenly. One of the ways that you do that is you kill the earthly. Verse 5, therefore consider the member of your earthly body as dead to a list. Now this idea here of consider, this is the tamest way of putting this verb. Because the verb actually means to put to death. That's what it literally means. Execute. That's what we are to do to the flesh. That is what we are to do to these different uh, things that he's going to go through here to consider. You put these things to death. Now, have we been freed from the power of these things? Yes. That has happened. And by the way, let's just go here for a second. Do I have two spirits? Do I have, do I still have the old, am I still the old man trying to become the new man? Okay, I see a bunch of people shaking their heads, and that thrills my heart. Look, I'm not two different people inhabiting the same body. At the moment of conversion, what do you become? You're a new creature. The old things have passed. Behold, new things have come, right? 2 Corinthians 5. So the idea is, is that I am the new man. Why then do I still struggle? Because I still have this body. I still have this flesh. So it's like I have a sin hangover. I still have this flesh that's inhabited by a new man. That's why, what are we all looking forward to? Especially as we're getting older. New bodies. Where now that influence of sin is gone and gone forever. So, we have to continue Pulling weeds. That's the idea of of mortifying the flesh. You're pulling weeds. Where sin starts sprouting up, you yank it. And you keep going after these things. Now he goes through, he's going to have two lists here. Two lists. His first one, 
you consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Immorality is the word porneia, and what, do we get, what words would we get from porneia? Pornography. It's sexual immorality. It's sexual sin, sexual perversion. The idea of impurity is filthiness, moral uncleanness, polluted. Passion is the idea of a diseased soul. And if you look at passion and evil desires, you can think of passion as the root and the evil desires, the lusts of the flesh, as the fruit of this diseased soul. In greed, unbridled covetousness. Now, if you go over to Ephesians 5, you'll find where these three are linked together there as well, where it talks about uh, immorality and evil desire and greed. We are to consider ourselves dead to those things. Now, if we are to be dead to these things, then should we be feeding those things? No. Now, what do I mean by feeding those things? Okay, giving into it when you're tempted. Making provision for it. So how, I'm sorry. Not avoid, yeah, we are to avoid them, right? If we don't avoid them, then what are you running the risk of? Yeah, ending up partaking in them. That goes back into the idea of making no provision for them, right? So if I want to be on a diet, would it help me in my diet if I have as the screen, as the wallpaper of my phone, Krispy Kreme? And when I have the calendar on my wall at home, it's the calendar of eclairs and Danish and all of those things. Now, you know, we're all laughing, right? It's funny, except it's not funny. If you want to be not making provision for the flesh, then that means don't be doing the things that make that more accessible. Brian. <laughs> so the idea of a pastor called that window shopping for sin. Again, if you want to avoid something, you don't put it around you. you, you in fact, you go the opposite way. Right? I was watching something the other day uh, talking about um, how do you deal with pastors who fall into sin? If you're a pastor, and just, in fact, you know what? Eliminate the word pastor. If you're a Christian, how do you want to deal with boundaries? Do you want to come, do you want to be like uh, 
cows who get right up along the fence. A cow that's walking along the fence, what's it looking for? Looking for a way through. It's looking for a way out. We have a cow that's very good at that. So, when it comes to boundaries, do you want to be on the boundary? Do you want to be the boundary walker? No. You stay back. Don't window shop for sin. I like how that guy put that. You consider yourself dead to these things, for it is because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Now, is there a future judgment for the unredeemed? Yes. That's not the actual tense of this verb. That's this one, as it's translated, is what tense? Will come. That's future. The actual tense is presence. It's, it comes. Is there a sense in which the unredeemed are facing God's wrath even now? They just haven't sensed his final wrath where they are permanently condemned. Again, so the idea that someone who is unredeemed, are they going to be at war with God? No, they're already there. And again, what's even worse than being at war with God? God's at war with them. And that is also the way things are now. And in them you also once walked. This, this characterized us. So that list of immorality and impurity and passion and evil desires and greed, that all characterized us, right? That was how we were. That was how we thought. That was how we acted. But there is supposed to be a difference between how we were and how we are if we're now in Christ, that's why, again, if your life is, 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 continues to be characterized by the things by which it was characterized before conversion, there's a question that ought to be asked. Now, isn't there? What's the question? Was I converted? Because if my life exhibits no change, if my life exhibits no difference from the way I used to be, then what has been changed inside my heart? If you, look, if you go by a tree, and that tree has got leaves of a particular shape, and it produces fruit of a particular kind, what kind of tree is it? It's that kind of tree. Do I expect to be picking blackberries off of a cherry tree. Okay, my wife is laughing because if the blackberries are growing up inside the cherry tree, then yeah, you, they're not coming off of the cherry tree itself. When I go up there and I pull something that's connected to the tree and I pull it off, it's going to be a cherry, assuming the birds haven't gotten to all of them. The fruit that comes off is the kind of tree that it is. If the tree has been changed, the fruit of that tree should be changed. 
And if it's not, then you got to start asking whether or not it's actually a different kind of a tree. So again, we were characterized by those things. Verse 8, but now you also put them all aside, and now he's going to get into things that... Um, this hits close to home. Anger. What's anger? Pardon me? Murder. <laughs> well, it is murder. What's anger? Okay, pride coming out when you don't get your way. What's anger the cause of? What, what, what comes out of anger? Murder comes out of anger. What else comes out of anger? I don't actually kill somebody, but what is the attitude in my heart toward them? Hatred comes out of anger. Now you ratchet it up a little bit and you get wrath. What's wrath? Wrath is the idea of rage, fury, anger on steroids. Now ratchet it up a little more, malice. What's malice? Okay, malice, now you're translating into the actual doing. The desire in your heart is to accomplish evil against another. That is why when you talk about, for instance, first-degree murder is defined as the, the killing of another human being with malice aforethought, meaning I thought about it, I planned it, I put the stuff into, into play, I put the stuff into action in order to be able to accomplish it. That's malice. So hatred springs up over here in hatred, the wrath gets everything up to a boil. The malice now puts feet to that as to how to actually accomplish it. Um, slander. What's slander? Okay, slander is verbal murder. I'm killing the other guy. I'm just doing it with my words. You've heard the term character assassination? That's slander. Verbal murder. Abusive speech from your mouth. This idea of abusive speech, this is foul-mouthed, vulgar. You don't really care what comes out. So we're to kill those things too. We put them aside. Now, this is a beautiful... So now he's going to switch over here, and he's going to use, a, again, another metaphor. And the idea is, the idea of putting off is literally undressing from it, and then you put on. So you are taking off the old, you are setting that aside, and you are taking on the new, and you are putting it on in its place. That's literally the, the picture here. And so, again, 
We take off those things, we put off those because they characterize who? Who, do, who does anger and wrath and malice and slander and abusive speech, who does that characterize? That's the old man. I am no longer the old man. So I should take off those things, the vestiges of the old man, and toss them. And in their place, now, now here's the important thing here with this. Does that end the process? I'm taking off the old guy. Okay. Okay, so the idea is you either replace it with something else or that's going to come back. Now, Jesus talked about that too, right? The guy comes in and he, he kicks out the tenants and he sweeps up and everything, and, and, but nobody else moves in. And who ends up coming back? The former tenant, the demon. And except he doesn't come back by himself. Who does he bring with him? Seven more worse than him. So again, the idea here is we are putting off, but we are replacing that with, you, you can't walk around naked. Now, you, thank me, believe me, you're happy that I'm wearing this shirt, all right? The idea here is you, you replace it with what does characterize you. You put on the new man. And then there's also being renewed, which we're going to get into here too. Do not lie to one another. What's lying? Oh, come on, that was an easy one. What's lying? You know, something that's not true. If you tell half the truth, what are you telling? Well, it's lying because you're not actually communicating the whole truth. So now we look at that, well, come on, everybody. Who does lying characterize? Satan. Lying characterizes Satan. Did Satan tell Eve the truth? No, he lied to her. In fact, lying is the basis of what? Deception. That's the basis of it. You sprinkle in enough truth to make it believable. But at the heart of it is a lie. Don't do that with each other. In fact, you're not to do it to, to each other since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices. And you've put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Now, we trans we're transitioning there. There's the idea of you kill the earthly. Those things that want to take you and suck you back into your former way of living, you put those to death. On the other hand, you strengthen those things that demonstrate your union with Christ. Those you strengthen. Those you feed. Those you culture. Those you you encourage because that is who we are to be, right? So again, we want, to, we want to move in that direction.
So this idea here, we've put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. That again, that is a passive. Okay, so who's, who's acting here? Our mind is being renewed. Who's doing the work there? Am I doing that work? My mind is being renewed is passive voice. God is renewing my mind. Now, am I to participate in that? Absolutely. God is renewing my mind. It's in the present tense, so again, it's an ongoing action. And it's going to continue ongoing until when? Say it out loud, John. He's pantomiming to me in the back. (laughs) Until we're with him. When we shall see him, then we're going to be like him because we're going to see him as he is. And so our sanctification is going to be completed when we actually are with Christ. So again, now this idea of renewing is crucial. It is utterly crucial. What's the idea of having a mind that is being renewed? It's being transformed. It's being changed. So if you go back to 2 Corinthians 3.18, it talks about, you know, we're being transformed into his image. That is an ongoing process. What happens if you do not change the way you think? What happens when you're trying to take off the old man and put on the new man? If you're not changing the way you think, if you're not changing the way you view reality, what's going to happen? You're going to stay with the old man and you're going to continue doing the way the, things the way that you used to do them because you haven't changed how you think. Does that make sense? Okay, so, so Brian is using a term behavior modification, which again, changing the way that I think, act, but not changing the way that I think. Now, do you have a scriptural picture of that way of thinking? Is there a scriptural example of someone who was in that particular position? Pardon me? Okay, Judas. Was Judas sorry that he had betrayed Jesus? Yeah, he was. He went out and he killed himself. We have a few minutes. Flip back to the book of Job. Specifically, Job chapter 40. Now, book of Job, Job is afflicted by God. Well, Satan comes, asks for permission, God gives it, and Job is put through the ringer. He loses his wealth, he loses all of his kids, his wife is is utterly in despair, and now his friends come, and then he gets the boils, 
and his friends come, and are they helping him? No, they're piling on. Job, what did you do that God is doing this to you? And what has Job been longing for through this whole event? In fact, he talks about it. Oh, that I could go to court and present my case before you. He wants to meet with God so that he can present his case. And God says, okay, let's do it. And you have chapters 38 and 39 where God is laying into Job pretty well. And come to verse chapter 40. Chapter 40, verse 1, then the Lord said to Job, will the fault finder contend with the Almighty? Oh, what did God just call Job? You're trying to lay fault on me, the one who is holy, the one who is utterly pure, and you're trying to ascribe something to me that is absolutely contrary to my nature. Let him who reproves God answer it. Okay, Job, Spotlight on. Bring it. What's Job's response? Job answered, the Lord said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to you? I lay my hand on my mouth. Once I have spoken and I will not answer, even twice that I will add nothing more. What did Job just do? God, I'm going to put my hand on my mouth, but what? I'm not changing the way I think. I'm just not going to verbalize it. What's God's response to that? Was God pleased with that response? Well, I think one could say no. Then the Lord answered Job out of the storm and said, Now gird up your loins like a man. I will ask you and you instruct me. Will you really annul my judgment? Will you condemn me that you may be justified? Ooh. And God lays into him for two more chapters. Takes him back out to the woodshed for round two. Now, at the end of the second round, demonstrating that God is God and Job is not, where does Job get? I know that you can do all things, is chapter 42, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. What just happened with Job? Now he is... He is truly repentant. And again, what's the idea of repentance? I've changed my mind. This was the way that how I perceived. This is, what I, this is how I thought. Therefore, this is what I acted upon. I am now changing from that and changing the way that I think and therefore changing the way that I act. This is what God was after in Job chapter 1. Okay? Here's the idea now Job is changing his thinking. His mind is being renewed. When the mind is renewed, then you can hope 
for having actions that, re- that, that then are produced by a renewed mind. Does that make sense? When we hold on to our former way of thinking, and by the way, this former way of thinking, who's God in, in the former way of thinking? I am. Anger is because somebody made me unhappy. They didn't meet my expectations. Therefore, I am going to punish them. The old man revolves around me. That's why, again, when you talk about legalism, what's the underlying thinking behind legalism? God has to accept me because I am so much better than these other guys. So who am I measuring myself by when I'm dealing with legalism? It's about me versus these other people. It has to be. Because if I compare myself to God's standard, I'm still hosed. It's only because I can compare myself with someone else over here and I'm just cut above this other person over here. And therefore, God has to accept me. The idea of mysticism. What is mysticism, by the way? And, 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 and who's, the, who, who's creating the standard for these mystical ideas? I am. It, that's not what God says. And so this idea, uh, I went up to Dave a couple weeks ago and told him when he had the, 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 the sermon about Mary, that was the most disturbing sermon I think I've ever heard in my entire life. How did that happen? How did all this stuff come up with, with Mary? People are making it up. The Bible says none of that. They're making it up. And the idea is, you know, if we, put a, if we make it sound spiritual, then somehow God's got to accept that. The idea of asceticism. The idea of making, you know, inflicting pain on myself that I may appear more what? Spiritual. Who's the arbiter of that? Me. Again. That world is still revolving around me. So these things that the false teachers are trying to come and give to the Colossians, hi there, you need to live like the the devil. You need to live like Satan. Because that's what Satan did. He made it about him instead of about God. I want to be like God. I I will ascend to the Most High. I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. And so again, the idea here is, that is the old man. So, you kill the old guy. You be renewed in your thinking. And you clothe yourselves with those things that characterize the new man. Next week, he's going to get into more specifics. Exactly, in fact, he's going to go through. Put on, clothe yourselves with humility and 
a whole laundry list of them. Set your mind on the things above. Keep on setting your mind on the things above. Keep seeking those things where Christ is. Because Christ is our life. We're in union with him. Therefore, we should be doing those things that characterize him. Any questions? Dave. Okay, so the question is, going back to verse 9, is this something that has happened or is this something that we are doing in the present? And the answer is yes. You weren't in here for that part. We actually covered that a little bit earlier. But to go back over, the old man is dead. At the moment of our conversion, what happened to the old man? He died. He died because we died. So in that sense, the old man is dead, right? But, and again, not just was the old guy killed, what else happened? Say it louder. The new guy came in. We've been made, you know, therefore, um, the new man, all right, here, let's just go back over because I'm vapor locking. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away, behold, new things have come. So the old guy is dead, the new man is there, but the, old man, the new guy is moving into the old house. And the old house is the thing there that we keep fighting against. And so the new man, there is no old man, new man combination. Old guy is dead, new man is created. But because the, old, the new man is in the, the same house, we're having to go through and basically we have a nice garden, we're having to, keep, we're having to pull the weeds in order to keep fighting against sin, to be, again, having our mind renewed so that we are acting in a proper fashion that demonstrates our union with Christ. So, yeah, the old man is dead, but we still have the, the, the continuing on effects of the flesh. Yep, live consistent with our identity. We're the new man. We're in the image of Christ. So act that way. With a, lot of, with a few other verbs, with a few other words thrown in to, to flesh it out. Any other questions? Oh, Rick. Right, it's not behavior modification. Again, yes, the mind has to be renewed. Now listen, the mind is being renewed. And what helps with that, by the way? 
Okay, being in the Word. We're going to get into that at a, extensively next week. That's one of the ways that he is going to say, look, if you want to have your thinking renewed, then here's the things to be doing in order to accomplish that. That accelerates that. You know, I, I'm not a gardener. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a plant person. I'm not even that big on eating them. I like animals to eat plants so that I can eat the animal, all right? My wife is. And so I'll notice uh, she, we've got some plants that are on hangers in the house, and she needs me to be able to go over and get the thing off the hanger. Just like, you know, I used to be, my mother used to call me her Wookie because I could get things off the top shelf. Carolyn needs me to be able to get some things off the top shelf so that she can water them and feed them and nurture them so that they will do what? Grow. So if you want something to grow, you take care of it. You give it the things that it needs in order for it to grow. Anything else? You look like you're just itching. Yeah, you. Yeah, you. I knew you were. <laughs> okay, I have to repeat that. Brian's comment, you know, Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4 are the basis of biblical counseling. And it's not simply take this off and replace it with this. You have to, otherwise all you have is spiritual weight watchers. You have to have the renewing of the mind and changing how you think and, and, and what you think and what you believe to be true. Right. Right. So the point is, this is something that is progressive. It doesn't just happen on day one. You know, automatically you're made instantly sanctified. Or the first of January. <laughs> All right. Let's pray. Father, thank you that. You have made it possible, Lord Jesus, when you died, you, you killed sin. You killed the power of the devil. And you have, in Christ, those of us who are redeemed, you have killed the old man. He's dead. Lord, help us to live in such a way that we demonstrate that that's true that more and more as, as we are made and we are changed more and more into the likeness of Christ, that we would look more and more like your kids, that we would act more and more as he did. Father, I pray that we would be willing participants in that, that day by day as we are again confronted with sin, with errors in the way that we think, that we would be quick to see those and that we would be quick to turn from them. Lord, that our focus would be on you, that our eyes would be looking up, that we would be constantly seeking, constantly setting our affection 
on you, constantly seeking the ways in order to, to be made more and more into your image. Thank you that one day you're going to accomplish that in full. And that we'll be with you, we'll be able to worship you face to face because we will no longer have any vestiges of sin. That'll be gone and gone forever. How we long for that day. In the meantime, help us to walk more and more in a way that would be pleasing to you. That that would be our manner of life. Help us now to be able to see you and worship you aright, to declare your greatness, that we would behold your greatness, and that we, as we leave from here today, that we would walk in a manner worthy of our calling. In Christ's name, amen.